Welcome to The Read Along, a mini book club for your ears, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. I'm your host, Scott. I'm your other host, Anita. And join us on a journey through a good book, one, one chapter, chapter at, at a time. Hosted by Todd Hirsch, ATB Financial's Vice President and Chief Economist, The Future of Podcast has launched its third season. By connecting with industry leaders to uncover what's on the horizon for the things that mean the most to you, The Future of Podcast promises to give you insights to help navigate what is often an uncertain future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. Subscribe to The Future Of in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found, and connect with us at atb.com the future of. New book. Woo! So we put out a Twitter poll, as we usually do, or have for the, the past little while, asking for what genre we should do next. And uh, the three options were, well, there were four options. One of them was Nita's Choice. Yeah. But the uh, three main options were science fiction, horror, and mystery slash thriller. Science fiction won by a decent margin, but then we ended up finding a book that was a science fiction novel that also happens to be a horror and mystery novel. So everybody's happy. Yeah, it covers everybody's desires for the next one. <laughs> the only thing it wasn't was Nita's Choice. Which uh, is fine. Because of the way that looking after young children kind of works, it's difficult to take them to a bookstore and have the time to browse. Yes. So I ended up going to the bookstore by myself and uh, sent Nita a bunch of pictures of books. <laughs> and this was the one that we both kind of agreed within a reasonable span of time. Yes. Was, was a good choice. So Screams from the Void by Ann Tibbetts. Yeah. And because we don't really have a recap to do. <laughs> it's true. This is a good opportunity to uh, maybe discuss the author a little bit. Yeah, that's a good idea. So Ann Tibbetts, and you can see it on the back of the book, uh, she has a pretty decent bio there. She came from being a writer's assistant for television, working on scripts. I think that that comes through in this first chapter, mm -hmm. honestly. This definitely felt to me like the cold open to the first episode of a television show. Right? Me too. Yeah. It's in my notes. I'm like, this is a great cold open. She has previously authored several books, uh, which were more post-apocalyptic and less kind of like far future. Um, obviously, I have not read them. <laughs> this is the first time I've read an Ann Tibbetts novel, so uh, looking forward to it. And uh, if it's good, I might go back and read those post-apocalyptic ones. Sure, why not? Yeah, why not? Uh, and she is also a literary agent. She currently works as a, an agent for a number of other authors and a uh, bit of a book doctor, punching up manuscripts. Which is nice. Yeah. So uh, in addition to working as an author, she helps other working authors, which is nice to see. I like that. Yeah. That's nice. Not an extensive Wikipedia page on this one, unfortunately. No, but so. that's okay. Yeah. We will learn a lot about our author through their work, right? So here we go. As we move into chapter one of Screams from the Void by Ann Tibbetts. Chapter one. A cold open. <laughs> well, yeah. As we said, it, it definitely had that cold open feeling. Oh, 100%. 100%. Also borrowing a little page from George R. R. Martin in that you introduce in the first chapter a point of view character who does not survive the first chapter. Nope. To be fair, no human that we meet 
survives the first chapter. <laughs> yeah, definitely a horror movie opening, a, oh. an explosive horror movie opening. Uh, this was a beautiful piece of atmosphere. Oh, for sure. I really liked a lot of the description of the flight deck. Oh, it felt hot and cramped and dark. Yeah. Like the captain stretching and touching the ceiling. Like, yeah, exactly. Like it's and this them, tiny them ship. kind of moving around each other or hunching over one another to push buttons. Yeah, everything yeah. everything is sweaty and grimy, right? Like the atmosphere is palpable in this first chapter. It's great. There are two kinds of starships that you see in science fiction, in my experience. Very good. To uh, to risk delving into like the sci-fi corner. Space. Humans and aliens. There's the mind killer. Surprise and terror! Humans are superior. If you take my meaning, sir. The first is the Apple Store future. You've got your Star Trek ships on that one where everything is very clean and pristine and shiny and bright. And then you've got like your alien future where everything is dingy and industrial. This is a thousand percent an alien Uh, future. The Millennium Falcon falls into the dingy industrial. (laughs) And this one definitely, you're right, falls into the latter. Oh. For sure. Oh, yeah. But it also, to me, elicits a feeling of space as a place. Like it's a place where people don't just have adventures but just do work. Yeah. There's a certain mundanity to it that brings me into it in a way that the utopian future of Star Trek doesn't. The utopian future of Star Trek is aspirational to me. Well, yeah. But it doesn't, I can't relate to it as much because it's it's so different from what we're living in today. Whereas Alien, I can relate to because it's a bunch of working stiffs in space. Yeah. Who just happen to be working in space. Yeah. Right? But space is just a place you work. And yeah. work hasn't really changed. It's it's a lot like <laughs> like sailors working at sea. Yeah. Right? You're kind of isolated, but you're stuck with the group you've got. And if something goes wrong, uh, you're kind of hooped. And here, out in space, uh, things have gone horribly wrong. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yes, the Demeter is a freighter. That's what it decided. says on the on the back of the novel. It says that it is a freighter. Yeah. Though it appears to be stuck in orbit around a planet because it's got so, uh, like a science team down on the planet. Right. Doing some science. We we talked about this very briefly before we turned on the microphones. Why is a freighter hauling around scientists? The best I could figure, and I, I mean, this might get explained. This is maybe. just this is just wild, irresponsible speculation. But my belief is maybe part of what they do is they collect materials from planets they stop at to then freight to other places. So it's possible this botanical team, or I I seem to recall it's botanists who are down on this planet, are collecting samples which are being shipped somewhere, and that's why the freighter is involved. Or it could be a multi-purpose ship like the Enterprise. Like we talked about Star Trek a moment ago, the Enterprise is a multi-purpose ship. It's not just a warship. It's also a diplomatic vessel and a science vessel and an exploration vessel. No reason the Demeter couldn't cover a couple of those bases all at once. Which, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, spaceships are expensive. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's <laughs> there's no question. It, yeah. it costs a lot of money to make a spaceship. So making a spaceship that can do a bunch of different things saves you having to build three different spaceships, right? Yeah. That's just economical. Exactly. Also, this one feels small. Well, the flight deck feels small. The flight deck feels small. The space that we inhabit in this first chapter feels small. If it's a freighter, it probably has a large cargo area. But that might mean that the rest of the ship is rather cramped. Yeah, to kind of compensate. For the vast cargo area. Yeah. Yeah. 
when you think of a freighter, generally speaking, you're not thinking of a comfortable ship. You're thinking of a functional ship. Not everything is a glorious luxury cruise liner like the Enterprise D. <laughs> Some things are just built for function. Yes. <laughs> Basically, this is a semi-truck of space. Yeah. yeah. Again, the parallels to Alien really feel true here because the ship in Alien, the Nostromo, is basically a space truck and they are space truckers they are space truckers yeah, yeah. so it's uh, it's not a ship that's necessarily built for comfort so our point of view character through this first chapter is ensign chris cunningham who is currently sitting at navigation with two other people on the flight deck the pilot and the captain who don't get names which actually to me reads like ensign cunningham here chris is new okay the fact that she's an ensign indicates low rank she feels kind of out of place on the flight deck at this time yeah, as well, mm -hmm. um, which reads to me like she doesn't really know the captain or the pilot. Which is fine, but you'd still know the captain's name. Maybe, but like I get no indication that she's familiar enough with the captain to think of him beyond just as the captain. Fair enough. And maybe doesn't really know the pilot at all. Just knows her as the, the pilot. pilot. As the person who's sitting at the pilot station. Yeah. That's kind of how that came across to me. Yeah, okay. Very, these are people I work with and I'm new at the job. Fair enough. Yeah. And Chris has come across a weird sensor blip, but the, the reason why it's particularly weird is that it's a sensor blip not coming from outside. It's coming from inside the ship. The sensor is inside the house? Yeah, they're they're in the walls, man. <laughs> I'm telling you, the sensor's right. Um, <laughs> at first, she's nervous to bring this up because she's she doesn't want to make a mistake and end up getting castigated by the captain. Well, yeah. On like her first day. <laughs> right? This is this is new person jitters mixed with a horrible situation turns yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. But she she does report it and of course the captain and the pilot are first like, "Well, that doesn't seem right. Are you sure you're reading that correct?" But then they're like, "Well, no, you're definitely reading that correct. There's definitely something in the air duct." Yeah. It's in the vent. <laughs> and it appears to be making its way toward the bridge. We should probably check that out. And this is where some mild panic starts to ensue because they're worried about, well, to be honest, they're worried about getting sick. Yeah. Right? Chris uh, thinks about other vessels they've heard of that catch some weird space disease. Yeah. Right? And everybody dies. She doesn't want that. No. Not on her first day. No. <laughs> Nobody wants that. So, And even the captain at one point is like, ugh, like we should catch this thing, assuming that it hasn't already made spores or something that we're all in it hailing right which leads me to believe that we're still very much in an exploratory space exploration phase they don't know everything that's out there right so we're still encountering in this universe that our author is building there's still lots of new stuff yeah it's interesting because the most common thing i read when it comes to like oh space parasite is on board we're all sick and going to die uh, because our bodies have no natural immunity to this weird space parasite that, that's come on board. I only just recently stumbled upon the exact opposite of that, which is, oh, we don't have to worry about space parasites because we don't have the same DNA as them. Oh. They can't actually do anything to our body. Like, they just cohabitate with us completely harmlessly. Which I thought was interesting because I was like, oh, that actually also kind of makes sense. If you are completely alien to this environment, this environment also has no idea how to deal with you. It's true. It might be a world war of the world scenario where we are, in fact, the deadly ones <laughs> and they can't handle our germs. Uh, Let's face it. Human beings are gross. Yeah. 
right? We're full of germs and bacteria and toxins and viruses and all that stuff. I'm just going to point out, though, that the Martians in War of the Worlds were not harmless to us. No, <laughs> they weren't. <laughs> I'm not trying to say that they were. What I'm saying is what took them down is something that was harmless to us. Relatively, yes. But when I was reading that, that came to mind because I'd only recently stumbled across a variant of that, which was like, oh, we have nothing to fear by this environment because this envir- we're the invasive species here. It doesn't know what to do with us. Yeah. But yeah, I, obviously the, the safe thing to do when you encounter a foreign entity from another planet is definitely quarantine. Do what Ripley says, you quarantine Kane. Right. And then you don't end up with a dead crew. Right? Everyone should have listened to Ripley. Nobody but did. The mystery here is that nobody knows, at least on the bridge, how this thing could have come on board without being spotted. Right? Like, it's already in the vents. How did it get there? Indeed. Mm. That leads to a little bit of speculation, like, could it have snuck aboard at a previous stop on our journey? Where has it been hiding all this time? Like, why are we just encountering it now? Right? None of these questions are answered. I have some speculation. Okay. But uh, we'll get to my well, irresponsible speculation. To be fair, so do our it. characters. Yeah. I think I think it's the pilot that suggests, like, we could have picked it up, like, maybe even two planets ago. Like, oh, okay, so that means you've been carrying it for a while. Oh, dear. Indeed. Mm. So they decide, well, we're definitely going to have to look in the vent. Yeah, it's coming for us. We should do something about that. So the captain fishes out a magnetic screwdriver and the pilot starts taking the cover off the vent to go and take a look. They also uh, put out a call to Sorrel, another member of the crew, someone who's a little more familiar with the bridge. And this is of great relief to Chris, who just doesn't want to be there anymore. There's really only enough space on the on the flight deck for three people. Yeah. And this is an excuse for her to take off and leave it in someone's more capable hands. Yes. Except, knowing how the chapter ends, Sorrel is the payload supervisor, so I'm not sure how much good he's going to do when he gets there. Well, the, I'm assuming the creature is going to be gone when he gets there. but Depends on if the door's locked. They ask for him to bring up something that they can put something in. <laughs> and uh, and yeah. he's like, what? And they're like, just come up here. They uh, they get the vent off and flash a flashlight down the vent, and they see something silvery and furry down there. And yeah. the pilot's like, eh, it looks mammal-like. Got a couple extra eyes, a couple extra limbs, and it's coming right for us. Which it does. Yeah. Uh, the thing pops out of the vent into the flight deck, changes color yeah. to camouflage itself, and then attacks the captain. Yes, Violently. Yeah, kills that guy dead. Yes, with like crazy razor talons and like terrible teeth and things get real violent, real gross, real quick. Yeah, the pilot tries to make an escape into the vents and gets also caught by the creature very quickly. And Chris basically just stands there shrieking for the most part. In terror, because let's face it, she's just watched two of her fellow crewmates uh, be sliced to death. Yeah, there's... (laughs) A half moment where she thinks by being as non-violent as possible, the creature has decided not to uh, really do anything about her. She is mistaken. Incorrect. The creature also kills her, uh, effectively wiping out the flight crew yeah. in, in very quick uh, A rapid decapitation Indeed. Is, is what happens. It like leaps through the air at her and slices her head off. What? Huh. And that's where the chapter ends. Yes. So, <laughs> so we're off to a doozy of a start. This creature is obviously a violent predator type creature, but is it killing for sport or is it killing for food? Or is it killing for defense? Like, is it scared? Does it feel trapped? Is it fighting its way out? 
Could be. Hard to say. Don't know yet. It hasn't expressed any kind of communication, so we don't know how intelligent it is. Hunter intelligence, at least. Yes. I don't know if it can be reasoned with or communicated with yet. Mm, it, it seems animal-like. Hard yeah. to say. That's just it. Hard to say. I pictured something... We, we did get a description of our, our little alien. I pictured something very, like, ape-ish. Oh, I was sorry, picturing sorry. something a little more wolfish. Well, it says it's about the size of a dog. Which is, I think, why something a little more like a fox or a wolf came to mind. Yeah, makes sense. What uh, it was six paws, crazy claws, big teeth. Four eyes. Four eyes. And it changes color. I, I genuinely pictured, like, an alien-ish sort of baboon-looking something with long arms. And I'm making gestures that no one can see. Yeah. <laughs> long arms and big claws. Well, we might get a, a better description of it down the road. Yeah, maybe. Early speculation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because we know from the description on the back of the book that there is not just a monster aboard the Demeter. There is a murderer. Yes. So I'm not going to crack open the door to the accusing parlor. We're not going to pull off the sheets from the furniture and light the fire yet. We're, we're not quite there. We don't know enough characters. But I am going to suggest someone brought this creature on board. And that is why it went undetected. Someone brought a deadly monster on board on purpose for some reason. This is the releasing the snake into the room. Yeah. Hiding hiding the tarantula in the bed. That kind of thing. That is my very early, completely irresponsible speculation. And it's based primarily on the fact that they don't know how this thing could have gotten on board. It was snuck on board on purpose to do murders. Ooh. Yes. To help with doing murders. Yeah, that is my speculation. Interesting. Well, we'll see what happens, won't we? Yeah, because we don't really have much information, and nope. the, the only character we've gotten to know so far is dead. Yep. So, <laughs> so this really did feel like a prologue as opposed to a first chapter. Yeah, but meh, whatever. It is what it is. Yes. Yeah. And what it was was violent. Very much so. <laughs> so uh, that's that. I guess that takes us to the end of our discussion for today. Yeah, we end our chapter with uh, Alien Three, Humans Zero. <laughs> I have a little kill count in my notes. <laughs> well, we'll uh, we'll find out if the humans start succeeding in any way. Probably not for a while Probably if there's not. only one alien on board. Uh, uh, we also don't know how big the ship is yet. We don't know what the crew Oh, there are so is. many things we don't know yet. Yeah, we'll hopefully find out a little bit more about that as we move into the next chapter, which you'll want to read up on in time for next week. Yes. In the meantime, there's a festival coming. Woohoo! Anita's going to tell you all about it. This episode of The Read-Along is brought to you by the Northwest Fest International Documentary Festival, running in cinema from May 6th to the 14th and online from May 5th to 15th. NWF is thrilled to finally be able to bring the festival back to Metro Cinema this year with an outstanding lineup of some of the year's best docs and a few fun surprises. This year's festival is a hybrid affair with over 20 films screening at Metro Cinema, including the acclaimed Nick Cave music doc, This Much I Know To Be True, along with dozens of feature and short films screening online. Award-winning filmmaker Alexandra O. Felipe will also be in town to present his filmmaking masterclass. This event will be open to the public and is an absolute must for anyone who's ever dreamed of making their own film. Check out the full Northwest Fest film lineup and purchase all access passes or single tickets at northwestfest.ca. That is a doozy of a tongue twister. Northwest Fest. Northwest Fest. It's the fun one for your tongue. Uh, obviously, that's kind of a local ad for here in the Edmonton area, but uh, I mean, as is always the case, you're definitely going to be able to find great film festivals 
in or around your oh, area. Oh, absolutely. Uh, film happens everywhere. Yeah, definitely seek them out, too. Uh, a lot of independent filmmakers don't get, like, big studio releases and whatnot. It's a great opportunity to take in a lot of stuff that you, you might not be able to find regularly. It's true. There's a lot of good stuff out there, but sometimes you have to go find it. Yeah. It doesn't always come to you. That's, that's exactly right. Other things that you can go and find, because it's not necessarily coming direct to you, is other podcasts, <laughs> like those on the Alberta Podcast Network. You can mm-hmm. check them out right now at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Probably you'll be able to find those great podcasts on your podcatcher of choice. It's likely also where you're catching our pod. Well, that just makes sense. Could give us a little rating and review. That helps us out. Oh, we'd appreciate it. We would also like to hear from you on social media. Sure. You can find us on... Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Goodreads. We are at the read along in most of those places. Yeah, we can also be sent an email via email. Yes, we are the read along at gmail.com. And with that said, as always, we love you very much, and we'll see you next time. No one can hear you scream. Thank you for joining us on The Read Along with your hosts, Anita and Scott Bourgeois, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. All Read Along music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Cover art is by Aaron Beaver. Be sure to join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Read Along, and check out our group on Goodreads.com. <laughs>